0: on a grounded faith. Uh, We dive into 2 Peter now in 2023. Uh, Peter wrote two letters, and we'll we'll talk about them, uh, to the same churches in Asia Minor, and and his goal was to have them have a grounded faith. Uh, This is his second letter. The first letter uh, went out around 64 AD, and it focused on the comfort of uh, of the believers as they walk through suffering. And Second Peter goes out a few le- years later, 67 AD, most people think, uh, toward the close of Nero's reign. One was towards the start, now toward the close. Uh, they've walked through a lot of persecution, and it's now a book warning believers of spiritual dangers, and it calls them to holiness. Uh, the first letter's objective was comfort as an overarching look. The second, as we dive into, is about caution. Uh, for example, if you look at 1 Peter as a parent who is soothing their hurt child, they're giving them comfort and assurance. Second Peter is that same parent cautioning their child who is walking down the road, letting them know to avoid the potential catastrophe of oncoming traffic. Both letters are focused on the well-being of the church or the child, but address different issues. Now, 2 Peter is considered by many uh, to be a very heavy book. It's called by one writer, A Dark Corner, along with Jude, uh, because it deals with the ugliness of false teachers. Uh, It deals with the lies that are born from not just without the church, but within the church. And so many people tend to overlook 2 Peter and Jude, but these letters are critical to spiritual survival. Yet as you work through 2 Peter, you realize that that his goal wasn't to end with survival, though. His purpose was not just that the church make it, but instead he expects the church to grow through it. He begins calling for grace and peace to be multiplied, that they would, with all diligence, add to their faith. And he concludes the letter with a, a clear call and command to be growing. Second Peter 3.18 says, "...but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ." To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And so as we embark on a, on a letter of warning on getting through or resisting being immune, uh, not being infected by false teachers, Peter still has this overarching goal in mind, and that's that the church will be growing in Christ. So facing this onslaught of lies, uh, Peter knows that the church is going to need discernment They will need immunity to the sickening lies and distortions of truth coming from within the church, from deceivers attempting to destroy the church. And so Peter embarks into this warning letter by first focusing on a critical foundation. And that's the title, if you're a person who wants to write a title down, that's the title of the message, A Critical Foundation. And his call for readiness to be grounded and discerning starts by focusing on the gospel truth by looking at our salvation and God's enabling through it. And we're, we're to be focused in on this key cornerstone, and it begins with a singular faith. Uh, Simon Peter, it says, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have attained like precious faith through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Worded another way, it's to those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. First Peter began speaking about salvation as well, but centered on assurance. How do we know we're saved? Affirming their security in Christ. Second Peter, the letter of warning and equipping, begins by affirming there is one faith for all believers. There is no special faith for apostles. There is no new nuance of belief to be added for others or special privilege to be obtained. There is One faith, a singular faith that is a, as he calls it, precious faith, something highly valued. And actually, the word precious used in Greek there is not just that it's highly valued, but that it is of the highest value. Peter starts off saying that as the church, as believers, they are believers like him in the same faith, and that that faith is of its highest value. One writer asked this question Is there any possession you have? more precious than the faith that links you to Christ and delivers to you his entire inheritance. And if you want to sum up this lesson in one question, that's the question right there. What is more precious to you than your salvation? What is more valuable? And you might think, well, Kenny, I know this. We're sitting in church here. We're given this time, but, but it's, it's something worth asking on Monday through Saturday, to, to ask yourself, because if you don't put your salvation as the highest value, and Peter is setting up a warning letter, then you will be ill-prepared to resist false teaching and lies that come in. It's a question worthy of daily thought. Why is it so dear and of singular value? Because in the singular faith, we are given Christ imputed righteousness Sprawl notes this There is no doctrine more precious than that of the imputation of the righteousness, which is the giving of the righteousness of Christ, to the account of the believer, because the only righteousness by which we will ever be saved before God is the righteousness of Christ. One faith, saved, as the most precious possession that you have, because it is literally Christ's righteousness on your account. All arrogance and self-justification is removed. What remains is his righteousness justifying and redeeming those who believe. And what we're talking about, and I'm sure you're picking up on it, is the gospel. And what's the gospel? I was reading through Martin Lloyd-Jones and uh, I don't know if you've ever read him. I enjoy him immensely. It's an old British preacher, long dead. It's always great to read Dead Guys. They can't mess up anymore. And so I like to read him. And, and he lists it very succinctly. He writes about the gospel. He says, the message, "'It is the message which the apostles preached "'round their world, "'that Jesus Christ of Nazareth "'was none other than the only begotten Son of God, "'and that he had come on earth for one thing only, "'and that was that he might bear the sins of man himself.'" In Christ, God has dealt with the sin of mankind. He has punished sin there. He has done away with it. How can man be right with God? Believe that. Submit yourself to it and say, I have no righteousness of my own. I accept the righteousness of God. That is the essence, he writes, of the Christian faith. The Christian church, therefore, has in this world to tell men that they cannot save themselves, that all their efforts and exertions will end in utter futility, but that God has done something in Christ. He has made a new way of righteousness, the righteousness of God by faith. God tells me that here is the way to get rid of sin and its guilt and power. Here is a new nature and a new life, positive and positive righteousness. God is offering a way back to himself in and through Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the nature of faith. Faith is centered around the gospel. The gospel is we are filthy rags that cannot save ourselves, and we have been given Christ's righteousness. That is the faith. It's a singular faith. No deviation, no new revelation. It is the gospel pure and true. And as Peter prepares us to face deceit, to face spiritual manipulation, to face distortion, As he prepares us to be discerning, he makes clear that we have a singular faith, faith in our Savior who gave us his righteousness, justifying us in him, that is at the point of salvation, made right. He's also working in us, sanctifying us through the Holy Spirit's work in us, and ultimately glorifying us in eternity. What does that mean? We're enabled to stand before a holy God, confident in Christ, making us perfect. Making us holy, making us acceptable. That is a critical foundation. It is a critical doctrine to be lived and understood. One, we were commanded to live and understand it, but if we're going to face any lie about Scripture, any lie about Christ, any deceit of the world, any twist from society, we must know who we are in Christ. It is critical to handle any attack against the faith, but I put a question after it: Is it important to us? Is it of highest value? Is it precious, uh, to quote Martin Lloyd Jones again, He asked this question in his commentary, "Is this doctrine about Christ, our righteousness, precious unto us?" Or I'll put it a different way: Do you take it for granted? Is it an assumed thing that you have? As a believer, do we get casual about the fact that we are nothing and he has made us holy? And, and what Peter is starting out with his book on warning about deceit is he's saying, you must understand what Christ has done for you and it must be valued in you Because otherwise, you're going to be set up for a fall because you won't understand who you are in Christ and what Christ has done. False teaching will always have arrogance and pride and humanism wove into it. You can always find it, but I can guarantee this, you will never find it if you don't understand what Christ has done for you and that he has given you his righteousness to make you holy before a holy God. You will be deceived if that is not precious to you and forefront in your mind. It needs to be precious to us. It needs to be of the highest value. What Christ has done, what he's accomplished must be precious. And that faith that we talk about, this idea is centered in on a singular person. You look at verses one and two again, notice what Peter does. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have attained like precious faith through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And notice what he's repeating. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of our Jesus, our Lord. I want you to see, and I put it in a paraphrase. This is what Peter starts his letter. He says, hi, I'm Peter, right? Peter says, I am the slave of Christ that is sent by Christ with Christ's message, saved as you are by Christ's righteousness, growing in grace and peace through the deep doctrinal knowledge of Christ. I'm Peter, and then everything else he says after that, if you're summarizing or putting it in a different way, is Christ, 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 Christ. I'm his slave. I'm his messenger. I have his message. I'm saved like you by his righteousness. All of that listing here, growing in the knowledge of Christ. Christ. He makes the centrality of Jesus Christ crystal clear. Peter starts his letter, and he says, you have one focus, and it's on a singular person, and it's Jesus Christ. And to make that point clear, he emphasizes that he repeats the name. He keeps referring to our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when he's referencing God and our Savior, the, the word he's saying is, God is, Jesus is God, and he's our Savior. He's our Lord our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in combating lies and twists, you have to have a singular focus on one person, and that is Jesus, our Lord. And that's seen now in Peter's description. He starts off saying, I have been in committed service. How does he describe himself? He says, I'm, and we read servant, the word is actually slave. He says, I am the slave of Christ." And in their society, a slave was at the lowest echelon of society. We understand that word. I think it's been changed to servant because it's easier for us to swallow the word servant than it is to swallow the word slave. Peter was saying slave, but he didn't say slave because he wanted to demean the Christian existence. He wasn't saying, well, you're just a slave a big deal. He's trying to describe something about your attitude. And he says to them, I'm Peter... The slave of Christ, and and a guy named Barclay summarizes it perfectly of what it means to have this attitude towards your Savior. Now remember, Jesus is God, and so in this description, he is saying this, he is Unalienably possessed by God. He is unqualifiably at the disposal of God. In other words, he doesn't give any, he doesn't tell God, I won't do this. He's at God's disposal with no excuses. All his rights are surrendered to God. This is what Peter is trying to communicate to the church. The Christian owes an unquestionable obedience to God and he must be constantly in the service of God. When he says, I'm the slave of Christ, it's not to demean the Christian existence. It's just describe the attitude of the Christian existence. And that is, we don't live for ourselves anymore. That we don't serve ourselves anymore. And as one author was noting, it says, masters in that culture could buy another slave, but a slave couldn't pick another master. You have one master, and it is Christ. And so when Peter says, I am his slave, he is not trying to lower in the sense of making the Christian existence less than, he's trying to describe how we interact with God. And we don't have rights. He has all of them. He goes on from there. I put here, makes you wonder if that would describe us. Could you honestly own the title of Christ's life? Do you respond to Christ and scripture and his demands that way. Yet Peter states that as Christ's slave, he has been entrusted with a significant calling because he is the servant and the apostle. In Christian society now, you're talking about someone with authority and a meaningful position. In all honesty, in the early church, if you were an apostle, you're at the top echelon. So I am the slave of Christ. And he describes his calling that has been given to him. He is a messenger sent with a divine purpose, the call to boldly and authoritatively proclaim Christ. So I am at Christ's disposal with no rights of my own, called by Christ to do the most important thing, which is proclaim him boldly. And as we look at this, you say, well, how does this apply to us? We are not apostles that office has passed, but as believers and including this early church, so as the people that Peter are writing to, we have a divine calling to proclaim his truth with authority and purpose. How do you have a singular focus On Jesus Christ, committed service, where you are saying to him, I am at your disposal. I don't put qualifications. I don't tell you I have my own time. There is no my time in this or my rights. Yet I understand that I have the highest calling to proclaim him to the world. I am at his disposal to do exactly what he wants, which is the the most important thing. We are to be completely committed to a very clear task, sent forth to bear testimony of the truth. But I want us to understand something. That is not done in ignorance nor shallowness. Peter states that we must have specific knowledge. We are to be committed servants and really dedicated students. Grace and peace, which is a common thing. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you, and then Peter qualifies it through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, Peter does not use a generic Greek word for knowledge. There's a regular word for knowledge, and I'll mispronounce Greek just like I mispronounce English. And again, I blame it on my Dutch upbringing and my father. It's his fault. So that's in a culture of passing the buck, I feel like that is something I can do from now until I die whenever I'm public speaking here. If I mess up, it's my dad's fault. Um, But the, the, the word for knowledge is gnosis. That's a generic word for knowledge in Greek, but he doesn't use that word. He puts a prefix on it. And I know now you're getting, everyone's like, I slept through English class. Thank you, Kenny. I'll sleep through this miniature Greek class. But it's the word epi in front of it, "epigenosis," And what it's saying is it signifies now not just knowledge as a whole, but very detailed, specific knowledge. And I put the word doctrinal knowledge. He says, I want you to grow in grace and peace, but he says, not in some generic world view that you may have, but in a very detailed doctrinal knowledge of Jesus Christ. In other words, grace and peace comes only through this detailed knowledge of a specific person, your Savior, which leads us to know that doctrine is critical as you walk into this battlefront, because remember, the whole purpose of this letter is to be a warning to what's coming. The darkness of this letter, you walk into chapter two and all you see is, is lies and distortion and people trying to twist truth. And, and you get to see a little bit of the history of distorted truth. And you, you'll look at the story of, of Lot and how he failed in life Uh, through what's going on and how wicked the world was with Noah. So he's about to talk about this constant rejection of of God from humanity. And he says, for you to understand this, you do need a deep knowledge of Christ. You need to know the deep things of your faith, especially as connected to your Savior. If you're going to have any grounding to defend and discern in this world, you can't just be a shallow believer. You will be duped if you're shallow. And I'm not talking about a knowledge that means you've gone off to college, because honestly, that's not necessarily going to give you the deep knowledge. It'll give you a lot of information, but it doesn't equate to a deep knowledge. But there's a lot of believers with a disinterest in diving in and understanding what all of this means. And Peter, in the inception of this letter, of this warning, is, is coming to the church and saying, you've got to understand who and what you believe in. You can't relegate that knowledge to someone else. There can't be a professor person you knock on the door to answer a few questions that pop in, and it doesn't mean we don't learn from others and that we cannot learn from others. We should, but we need a biblical framework of God's doctrine so that we can accurately defy and discern the truth. One of the reasons we emphasize reading Scripture personally and being in God's Word and understanding it is because you need to know God's Word for yourself. You need to read it. You need to wonder about it. And then as you come into the body of believers, when iron sharpens iron, well, iron can't sharpen iron if you bring no iron to the table. So if you don't have any idea of what's going on and no spiritual interest and no spiritual growth, well, you're not going to be able to discern between truth and lies. You will be at the mercy of liars. And what Peter is telling you, they're they're here they're all around and they're going to infiltrate. And to be discerning, you must be a mature, growing believer. A grounded faith is built on a solid foundation, a critical foundation. And to have such a foundation requires a singular focus on a specific person. That focus is seen in what is emphasized or prioritized in our lives. It doesn't take long to know what your priority is. Because you can tell anyone and everyone what your priority is, and all they have to do is sit back and see what your priority is. And if you're going to be a discerning believer, it'll be obvious that you prioritize your Savior. The question though is this, are you that committed? I first wrote, are you committed? And I know how I answer that question. Yes. I put, are you that committed because the standard set by Peter are you a slave apostle? Are you completely given over to him and serving him at the highest calling while diving into the specific knowledge that he asks you to know, which is to know his word? He's given it to us. It's there in scripture. And do you dig deeply to know your Savior? Are you truly grounded in truth? Not that you know the framework of your denominational setting, that you understand what you've been told all your life? Do you actually know what the Bible says? And maybe you're, you're new to the faith and you're saying, well, how do I get this? Well, you're starting off right. You're in his house and you're worshiping. Second thing, you need to make sure you're in his word, constantly hungry, devouring what he has to say to understand it. This may seem to be quite the daunting task, and I'm standing up here and saying it definitely is. To be this believer is a daunting task, yet we're not accomplishing this through our own power or energy, or even the energy and power and knowledge that comes from this world. Actually, we're not to be seeking outside or self-enablement to do this. Because as Peter makes clear, as he, he transitions from his greeting, verses one to two to the beginning of his letter, he makes clear that we have a singular enabling, verses three through four, according, connecting this. So he says all these things about we have one faith and what that means, the gospel truth, and that we are focused in on Jesus Christ. That's why he repeats it three times in one verse. And he talks about being the slave and uh, the, the, the one who has no rights, but the one that's called to do what is highest in God's calling. And then he says, now, according, how are we gonna do this? According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And I'll talk a little bit more, but life and godliness encompasses the all of life. Life means living life, the everyday, going to work, whatever you may do, eating, drinking, sleeping, however that falls out, that's life. And godliness is gonna center around this idea of worship and active obedience. In other words, he's given you all things and then he just lists all things again, life and godliness, all normal life and spiritual life and everything that has been given to you, you've been empowered with divine power. It says, again, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, and not our glory, but his glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust we have given unto us, or worded a different way, granted unto us everything we need to live the Christian life and discern what is truth. Don't forget his whole purpose. His whole purpose is to give you a warning, to be called to discernment. And he's saying you have everything you need to be a discerning believer. We're given divine power. What kind of power is that? That's the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. And it works in us to enable us to do what is pleasing to and glorifying of God. Glorifying God is a daunting task. It is impossible for us as human beings. However, we have been given divine power so that we can do all things pertaining to life and godliness. And so as we look at this, we're not in need of other knowledge. We don't need new enlightenment. No, we have been granted all things or everything. And I know I'm repeating myself and I'm doing it on purpose. You or we are lacking nothing we are sufficient through him. We are capable of living the full Christian life. We have every resource to live. As MacArthur notes, the Christian life on earth to the glory of God between initial salvation, justification, and final glorification, he glorifies us in all eternity. It covers the all of life, every last component of this earthly existence until eternity. Everything you need to know, every decision you need to make, you have his guidance for you to do that. He's giving you the ability to take anything in this life and live it to his glory and honor. The good, the bad, the ugly, the in-laws, whatever you want to call it, you can take all of that and live that to the glory of God. And then it says it covers all godliness and what he means by godliness is we, I see that word and instantly it becomes a, a theoretical word. Oh, godliness. And it's like, well, define that. What do you mean by that? And I even wrote it in, I have a, a journaling Bible. When I read, I just have 2 Peter and I write notes there, any questions I have. And I wrote in my little notes, I flip it over, define life and godliness. So here I am defining godliness in the context. It's every part of your worship of God. And it carries you to active obedience So whereas he says you have all of life, all the selling whatever you sell, making whatever you make, fixing whatever is broken, whether you're in the medical to mechanical, whatever it may be, all of life, he gives you that power to live for his glory. And then he says godliness, and it's shifting the focus now to the spiritual side of life from your worship to your active obedience of Christ. That's godliness, and it covers all godliness. Godliness. How is it possible that these resources are given to believers? And he uses that word knowledge again, because they have a personal, deep knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's that same epigenosis, and it's emphasizing here, in this context, personal saving knowledge of Jesus. Peter is pointing to those who are true believers tied to Christ's glory and excellence, not my own glory, not my own excellence, not what I've accomplished linked to his glory and excellence. And, and he uses that deep knowledge again because, and I'll remind you this in James, the devils believe in tremble. Satan's minions believe that Christ is the Messiah. It doesn't save them. It's not Salvitic. It's not deep knowledge. It's just knowledge. They kind of know. The United States is filled with people who kind of know but lack any deep personal knowledge of their Savior. As MacArthur notes, Unless, through the preaching of the gospel they realize who Christ is, the glorious Son of God who is Savior, and understand their need for repentance so as to come to him in faith, pleading for salvation, sinners cannot escape hell and enter heaven. Why does Peter, in writing to the church, mostly believers, talk about a deep personal knowledge of Jesus Christ? Guess where the false teachers are? In the church, guess who's going to read that they're lost if they don't have a deep personal knowledge of God? The same people that are teaching you can know God through all these other ways and that there's higher levels of of knowledge and different spiritual leanings. And, And honestly, if you want to dig into it, you think we have a cesspool of philosophy, trust you, it started back then with what they thought. So their whole philosophy that the body was separate from the spirit and you could do whatever you want in the body as long as your spirit's okay, that was woven into the lies that were taught. And so all of these things are there. And so Peter, I want you to see something as he writes to believers and he, and he prods them forward. He's asking the same question Paul asked at the Corinthian church, examine yourself, that you be of the faith. He's driving them to, to, to see it's not just that you know some facts that you can twist and turn and throw out there, but that you truly know Jesus Christ as Savior. And the divine power is granted to only those who have truly believed. They, and also we, are granted his power And it says his great and precious promises. What does that mean? Well, one, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust as it ends, we have a new nature planted within us. It is his nature that makes possible our victory over sin and deceit. Oftentimes people see Peter and Paul in conflict, but Peter is going to affirm Paul's writing. Paul writes about uh, that there's no temptation that's overtaken us except what is common to man, but we're able to overcome. Peter is saying the same thing. You've escaped the corruption. You are able to not be sucked in. Why? Because you have a new nature, because we have eternal life. And too often we look at eternal life and we see that as something we get in the future And don't realize that as redeemed humanity, we have eternal life right now. Those who don't have Christ are dead. We have life. And so we've been given eternal life, no longer dead in sins, but alive with Christ from now, starting now until all eternity. That's why he says partakers of the divine nature and being humanity, right? People have taken that verse and twisted it and turned humanity into gods and have, have destroyed and, and hurt the faith. And you can see that permeating even in the, in the Catholic faith. You look at the Pope who's given godlike status. They twist and turn scripture to whatever they can use it for. What he means by partakers of the divine nature is that we've been granted eternal life. As believers, you're alive. You have eternal life right now, and you're living that eternal life out. Someone who doesn't know Christ personally is dead. They don't have life. They sit right now under the wrath of God. Now, this empowerment, and I want to say this, is no mystical or ritualistic thing. It is the reality of a true Christian life. You're not waiting for a whoosh to come over you. You're not waiting to get goosebumps. You're not waiting uh, in some kind of very formal service that suddenly you've been bestowed this power. No, this is the reality of being saved. When is this power granted to you? At salvation. I go all the way back to if you're new in the faith and you say, how in the world can I encounter this society, answer its questions? And I would say you've been granted at salvation what you need. You've been given God's word and the ability to study it. You've been given the ability to see the truth that's there. What does Paul write of the lost world? They're going to read the things of Christ and they're going to think they're foolish. They're going to stumble over them. Why? Because they can't see it. But you as a believer, when you're saved, you're given the ability to understand his word to overcome what this world throws at us. This world, its current fancy or agenda do not empower us. It does not guide us. And you can look at this, if you just take a cross-section, and we've had the last couple years to see this, this world can empower a movement, right? Suddenly it can spread across the world, and certain individuals that were just doing nothing, suddenly when they speak, everyone listens and everyone runs, everyone does whatever they ask them to do. We can see how the world empowers, but it's not to empower or guide us. Instead, we know from whom and for whom we serve. I put it as an illustration because I think it's, it's necessary for us to look inwardly at the church. Because It's very simple for me to stand up here and blame the world for what's going on. Uh, the world is going to be empowered by the world. They have nothing else to empower them. So we can get all upset about these people who rise to power and have, have so much sway over our society, but they're worldly people empowered by the world. The danger, the destruction is when the church becomes empowered by the word. I wrote a a kind of a question, why do churches accept sinful lifestyles and even promote them? Why is that? Why do churches excuse their members' idolatry, things placed before God? Why does the church seem so consumed with chasing the latest cause of this world and condoning whatever is done for that cause? I put as an illustration, and this is a, a real life, took place in DC. There were churches during covid who literally wrote reproving articles against churches We're too small to be noticed, but like us, who met in person because we shouldn't have broken mandates that were given against that. Here's the kicker. Bad enough. Those same churches, I'm going to use the same clown that wrote that article, participated in a protest in Washington, D.C. as an elder of a church Got his whole church to do it and then stood up, by the way, against all the same mandates and then stood up and justified his actions because someone called him out on it. How do you condemn this church for gathering and then you gather and do this? I say that not to, to jump into any political thing and that's why I haven't named what goes on. By the way, he engaged in the protest on the Lord's Day. Won't gather with God's people, will gather with the world. That's how I looked at it. Why? Because they derive their power from the world and its approval and its agenda. They need the world's accolades. They deny that they need it, but they need the world's accolades. And so they subjugate truth to gain it. We do not need, nor should we seek, such enabling. And when we do, we're sure to be deceived by a host of false teachers. And I'll be honest with you, it's easy for me to talk about what's taken place. As a church, we need to be looking forward to what is coming at us. And here's the kicker, and Peter makes it very simple. You want the world's Accolades, you want their boost behind you. You want the push from that, that agenda that's caught the world by fire and it did. Talk about getting a message out. A message was was moved worldwide. And so if you desire that turbo boost in your ministry, well, you will definitely be deceived by false teachers because you're seeking enabling from someone, something other than who you are supposed to be getting enabling from, and that's Christ. We recognize the singular purpose and enabling from our Lord and Savior and seek no other. And I say this, if at any time City Light is seeking something else, be assured as City Light, you should speak up. Because we are to seek no other enabling, empowering, accolades, praise, boosts. That's not what we need. I put as a question, does that describe us? Do we truly understand and work from his divine power and rest on his great and precious promises? And I come all the way back to where we started to remember the context. Second Peter is a letter of warning. False teachers from within and even from without will afflict the church. We will face a barrage of lies and distortions and we will fail If we do not understand the need for a critical foundation, a foundation built upon a singular faith, a singular person, and a singular enabling, the ability to discern, to to live clearly for our Savior is not grown by understanding the whims of this world. Discernment is not exercised by appeasing the demands of our culture, society, and I add this other one our own earthly legacy. When I read some guys, and, and it's, it's, I would say this three years brought many disappointments in the sense of people you respected and revered and read, and then you see them fall colossally uh, at the feet of the world, is what they ended up doing. Why? And I can only think somewhat their legacy, how they'll be perceived. And I'm going to say this, who cares how the world thinks of us? Who cares what this temporal existence thinks in the end? Uh, one of my, it's a condensed quote, this person wrote it's what preach God, die, be forgotten. That's what we should want in life. But if if we're to serve, if we're to discern, if we're to be there, we cannot be at the whims of the world, our culture, society, and our own legacy. The critical foundation for discernment is seen in our precious faith, meaning when our faith is at the highest value in our life. It is centered upon our Savior. It rests upon his divine empowerment. But that drives us to ask some questions of ourselves. And here's three questions. I want to kind of close in on this. One, again, is a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He asked this question, is the faith precious to you? Be honest now, be individual. We've been thinking church now, zeroing down. Is your faith precious to you? Not that you hold it traditionally, that I am, it's precious because I'm Christian by heritage, and and that is valuable to me. I value the fact that I grew up in a Christian home. I value the legacy that I have, the heritage that's given to me. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the faith. Is it precious to you? Is Christ dying and giving you his righteousness precious to you? Is the gospel dear to you? And then is Jesus your singular focus? Do you seek to know the deep doctrinal things about him? Does he have your committed service? Do you dig to know him? And do you serve him with that dedication? And then is our worship, our life and obedience empowered solely by Christ? Do you come here to worship Christ or do you come here because you've always been coming here? because that's your tradition, because you're not something else, so you must be this. That's not the worship he's asking for. He's asking you to come worship him, enabled by him to do that in the way that he desires. Peter writes to these churches, and he's writing to us with a warning of danger. He wants us to discern, but commands us to do more than survive. He expects us to grow, to mature through the testing of our faith. And so as he begins his training, he makes clear that success hinges on the correct and critical foundation of true faith. What he's done in his introduction and start is he's carried us back to the gospel truth, and he's compelling the church and and us to take a much deeper look into it because he knows that the bedrock of discernment is found in the depths of God's saving truth. The foundation of discernment is seen in truly knowing God's great salvation. Let's pray together. My Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come together to study your word. We dive into a book that, that oftentimes uh, can be difficult because we look at the ugly side of um, this world uh, as it infiltrates into the church, as lies and deceits are, are, are taught and woven and thrown out there. <laughs> and it's never uh, so obvious It's oftentimes maybe people we've known and respected that have have lost direction or lost the empowerment. It's often people who are very popular and people uh, seem to be helped by them, but yet they weave a lie or or untruth. It's oftentimes, uh, sadly, in in our own church where we get caught up in the world's agenda and the world's um, causes and, and lose sight of what we've been called to do. As we embark on a letter that is designed to help us know our faith deeply and to understand our purpose here and to grow in you, to ultimately be living for your glory, that is our ultimate purpose, help us to be convicted. When we see our own tradition as the cause for what we do instead of a deep love and knowledge of you, help us to be convicted and help us to change. As you bring truth to bear, as you bring these warnings here, uh, help us to look inside the church instead of just outside of it. Help us to recognize that the world's agenda doesn't change ours and that we don't stand before you ultimately and say it was someone else's fault when we don't serve you. Give us open hearts and minds, soften us to your truth, and as we embark on this week, help the gospel to be something we think about deeply. We should be thinking about what you've given us daily. Help us understand and to be aware, to, to, to have it come into our, our minds, your righteousness given to us, how we had nothing. There was absolutely nothing we do that redeems us. We are filthy rags, but that your son came and died on the cross for our sins and gave us his righteousness so that we can stand before you wholly. Lord, help us to never lose sight of the magnitude and preciousness of our faith. In your precious and holy name, amen.